four or five weeks that I'm speaking, I want to speak about the Christian soldier. Actually, probably it's better, the Christian as a soldier. There are soldiers, literal soldiers in the army, in the navy, in the air force, that are Christians. There is, that's right. But the Bible speaks about Christians as being soldiers while they're here on earth. And we used to sing things like, onward Christian soldiers marching us to war, the Salvation Army, things like that. And, and I want to think about what it means to be a Christian soldier or a soldier for Jesus Christ. And what I want to do is I want to take a very practical look at this. Um, when you join the Army or the Navy or the Air Force, you have to go to through basic training, isn't that right? You go to wherever it is, the camp, and you learn marching and all, all, all that sort of stuff. But the essence of a soldier is not what they learn in training. The essence of a soldier is how effective that they are when it comes to the battle. Isn't that right? So I want to talk about practical things when it comes to this. So, so we're going to read, first of all, in First Timothy, in chapter 1, and verse number 18. We'll read a few verses in First and Second Timothy, and then one in Second Corinthians, and then we'll, we'll show, I'll explain what, how I want to go. I'm going to be quoting from the ESV because I think it's very helpful when it comes to these things. So 1 Timothy 18 in the ESV says this. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, by them that you may wage a good warfare. Paul's an older man. I used to think of an aged Paul writing to a younger Timothy. Paul's probably not much older than me, actually, to be quite honest. He's not that old. But he's writing to the next generation, and he's saying, as you move on, be sure of this, Timothy. The Christian life is about being involved in a warfare. That's what he says. Go a little further in this book for chapter number six. And this is what he says in chapter number six. He's closing up his letter. And we're going to read in verse number 12. And he says this, just the, the few verse words at the beginning of, the, of the, the, the verse. Fight the good fight of faith. You see that? Fight or contest the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life upon which thou art called and about which thou hast made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. The next book's Second Timothy, and that really is Paul's final letter before the Lord takes him home to heaven. And in chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, this is how it reads. For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. So he's in the departure lounge this time, or next week, next Wednesday, I'll be up in Newcastle and I'll be in the departure lounge waiting for the aircraft to come. So there's no going back once you're through security and once you're in the departure lounge. There's no going back, you're committed. And he says, I'm in the departure lounge. I'm just about ready to go. Look what he says. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course or finished the race, I have kept the faith. So Paul's telling us that his life has been a soldier's life, really. I fought a good fight. One more verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 
and we're enjoying our studies in 2 Corinthians. I know and I'm jumping a little bit ahead. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, here's what Paul says again, reading from the ESV. For though we walk in the flesh, that means, you know, we're bodily here, we're walking as human beings, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Now, if you want to know what waging war according to the flesh is, just watch the news about Ukraine and you'll see people warring according to the flesh with guns and, and rockets and tanks and helicopters and all that sort of stuff. So he says, that's not, that's not our thing. Our thing's not to be involved in that type of warfare. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. What is he saying? Our warfare is a spiritual warfare. Paul was saying fight the good fight of faith and he's saying the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly but they are spiritual through God. That's what the old uh, authorised version says to the pulling down of warfare. You could take your Bible, your New Testament, and you could read it and you would see there is a smattering frequently of words about war. They're everywhere. You read words, war, battle, fight, weapons, enemies, armour. But the word I want to finally get to as we go through this is the great word that's associated with warfare and it's this, victory. And as Christian soldiers, before we even embark on thinking about being a Christian soldier, we are absolutely guaranteed that we're on the victory side. Now, we'll talk a wee bit about that more, but, but listen, listen to what the Lord Jesus says. A bruised reed shall he not break, and a smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment unto victory. Listen to Paul. So when this corruption shall have put on incorruption and the mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to, praying this, brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. 1 Corinthians 15.55 O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Thanks be unto God who giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what John says. For whosoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. So as we think about the Christian as a soldier, we're going to think about conflict, and we're going to think about struggles, and we're going to think about battles, and we're going to think about enemies. But we go right to the end of the story, and we remember this. That victory for the Christian is absolutely guaranteed. Why? Because we're on the victory side. We're on the, and we'll see that in a little bit. So, so think about a modern day parallel. Ukraine. Is victory guaranteed for any of those sides in Ukraine? Absolutely not, is it? They all say they're going to keep going until they have a victory. But nobody knows. In the end there will probably be a compromise. 
And in the end, it'll be something that won't please anybody. But we know that in the end, the victory will be ours through the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so as we think about the Christian soldier, we are going to think about difficult things. And we're going to think about practical things. And we're going to think about things that mean we have to make sacrifices for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because a soldier makes a sacrifice, doesn't he? To be involved in the warfare that they're involved in. We'll, we'll talk about that in detail as well. But be sure of this. We're on the victory side. And whatever the struggle is, victory is our final destination. What was in your mind when you became a Christian, folks? When you, if you go back to that time when you trusted the Lord, you got saved. What was in your mind when you got saved? I'll tell you what was in my mind primarily when I got saved. There were a couple of things in my mind. But one of the big things in my mind was escape. That, that was the thing that was in my mind. I had been conscious of the, the need for retribution against my sin and the holiness of God and his justice and that one day without Christ I would face a judgment that I didn't want to face and how would I escape? How would I escape? And there's nothing wrong with that. There's not a thing wrong with that being a motivation to get saved. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? And maybe that was what was in your mind. Maybe what was in your mind was emptiness. You know, an empty life, that unfulfilled, that longing, that hunger, that thirst that comes from being spiritually dead. And there was that emptiness in your life that, that you just had no idea why it was there or what it was about. But when you saw that in Christ you could be reconciled to God and life could be real because you, and that was what made you come to the Lord. And absolutely no, nothing wrong with that. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. Maybe it was eternity that was in your mind. Maybe you were scared of dying. And the great unknown. And knowing that eternity was so long that you had to prepare. And Amos says, prepare to meet your God. And maybe you had been thinking about how do I prepare to meet God? How do I prepare to go in eternity? And you realised that Christ had come from heaven to save you for all eternity. And maybe that was what was in your mind. There's other things too. Was this in your mind when you got saved? Did you ever think about identity when you got saved? You know that identity is the burning issues of the day, isn't it? Everybody's got to know what their identity is. And I don't know what my identity is. And I'm going to change my identity. But did you know that... The only person in the world that really should be able to understand their identity is a Christian. And when we became a Christian, the Lord did things for us that we had no idea about at the time. But we only understand as we go on. And identity is one of them. We live, folks, in such a broken and confused world. Right? Where people don't even know anymore the simple things and obvious things in life. I speak to somebody called Charlotte. Charlotte is totally confused. Comes regularly to HMP Durham. And I sat down with Charlotte to talk one day. And Charlotte told me that his mother had told him that at least one of seven men could have been his father. Right? 
So imagine as a young man being told that your father, you don't even know who your father is. One of seven men could be your father. No wonder Charlotte was confused, right? And had been brought up in an atmosphere of, of, of confusion and, and insecurity and was totally without any anchor to understand who Charlotte was. And Charlotte calls himself Charlotte now. I don't actually know his real name, but you know what I'm saying, don't you? The Christian truly understands their identity. Do you know why? Because in creation, we understand that every human being is made in the image and likeness of God and possesses intrinsic God-given dignity. And as a Christian, we know that, don't we? We know that we are made in the image and likeness of God and we've got an identity in God that's honourable and glorious and magnificent because we're his. But as a Christian, we also understand our identity, who we are, not just in creation, but in Christ. God has given us an identity in the Lord Jesus Christ that is magnificent and that makes sense of everything we are and everything we're going to do. And one of those aspects of our identity is as a soldier, part of it. But I want to show you something. I want to show you, as you think about identity in our current context, I want to show you a little clip of a video. There's some guys called the Hendrick Brothers and they make some great Christian movies. Uh, uh, courageous and fireproof and things like that. And the most recent one I saw was one called The Overcomer. And part of that story is about a young girl whose father had run away and she had just become totally at sea as far as her life was concerned. Nobody cared about her, nobody knew about her, and she became a rebel and a troublemaker, and, and, and she, nobody, nobody wanted her. And she just had no idea who she was or where she was going. And so she was going to a Christian school. And this Christian family took an interest in her. And one Christian teacher was witnessing to her about becoming a Christian. And this wee girl was showing an interest. So she asked the wee girl to go away and read Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 2. And say, read Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2, Hannah, and tell me who you are in trusting Christ. And the wee girl's name is Hannah Scott. And I'm going to show you the clip of the film when Hannah comes back to her Christian teacher. And it's very, very moving about identity. Who am I? What is my identity? We're going to say our identity is a soldier of Jesus Christ. That's where I'm going. But I'm just talking about identity in general. Listen to this. I hope you'll hear it. Ask me who I am. Who is Hannah Scott? I am created by God. He designed me. So I'm not a mistake. His son died for me. Just so I could be forgiven. He picked me to be his own. So I'm chosen. 
He redeemed me. Somebody didn't want it. He showed me grace just so I could be saved. He has a future for me because He loves me. So I don't wonder anymore, Coach Harrison. I am a child of God. I just wanted you to know. Brothers and sisters, we are Christians. And because we are Christians, we have the highest honour and dignity that God can bestow upon anyone. And when we start to think about the practical way that that works out in our life, we have to see in this overarching glory of the fact that God has taken us and chosen us and redeemed us and saved us and given us purpose and meaning in life so that everything we do and everything we say and everything we approach is approached through the lens of the fact that we are children of the living God, elevated to the highest honour and dignity and given an understanding that most people in the world don't have. You know, when you see her, he designed me. I am not a mistake. You see, Charlotte was told he was a mistake. And didn't even know how the mistake happened. We are not mistakes. His son died for me so that I could be forgiven. He picked me to be his own so I am chosen. He redeemed me so I am wanted. You walk in the streets and you speak to any of these people that you meet in the streets and most of them think they're not wanted, thrown out on the street. So I don't wonder anymore. I am a Christian. So as we approach this subject of the Christian soldier, I want to put it in its context. As you read the Bible in the New Testament, you as a Christian are many things. Many things. Your identity is without mistake and without confusion and without complication. You are a child of God. We have a relationship with the living God. More specifically, we are sons of God. And that's not nothing to do with gender. That's got to do with our position of responsibility and honour in God's household. We are disciples of Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, Acts 11 says this. The disciples were first called Christians. At Antioch in Acts chapter 11. So before they were ever called Christians, they were called disciples. We are priests of the living God. So when we pray in this together company, you know, when brothers pray, they're leading a company as a priest used to lead the company in the Old Testament. We've got access right into the presence of God. And when we, we're a kingdom of priests, we're a, a royal priesthood, a holy priesthood. We are citizens 
of another country. We're living in a foreign land. We're ambassadors of Jesus Christ. So every Christian has identity, not just in creation, but in the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of those aspects of the identity is what we're going to look at. Every Christian, remember the last time we read 2 Timothy was an athlete. That's one of our identifying factors. We're an athlete, you know. We strive, don't we? We've got to strive lawfully. Every Christian, remember, is a study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, uh, uh, rightly divides the word of truth. Every every Christian is a student, or more to do, a craftsman. The Bible says that every student, every Christian is a farmer. Isn't that right? That was in 2 Timothy 2 as well. You know, the husband must first labour before being... And when you think about a farmer, you think about sowing seed. Isn't that... Remember what we do? If you were a good farmer and you were sowing seed, what's the big thing you've got in your mind? Coverage. Isn't that right? You know that parable of the sower, the different grounds that Andrew spoke about on, um, on Sunday night? You know, in, in Mark chapter 4, the, the, the sower went forth to sow, and we are called to, Paul says, one sows and another waters, we have to sow the seed of the word of God. And the idea of being a Christian farmer is throwing the seed as far as you can and is covering as much as you can. Every Christian is a fisherman, isn't that right? Follow me, and I will make you to become what? Fishers of men. Every Christian should have at least a burden to be a Christian fisherman. Now, now some people are, I, I go fishing. The only thing I've ever caught when I went fishing was a cold. That was the only thing I ever caught. I don't ever think I've caught a fish. I'm not, I've gone fishing, but I'm not a fisherman. But there are good fishermen, aren't there? And there are, good, there are people that are really good at fishing for souls because the Lord has given them a special ability or a special gift in that direction. But the Lord's saying every one of us should at least feel the the need to be a fisher. We should at least be trying to fish, shouldn't we really? We should be trying to fish. And what's the idea of a fisherman? It's not coverage. It's catching. Even I, I wanted to catch a fish, even though I was a useless. The point of going fishing is not just to stand and look at the water, it's to catch a fish. F- folks, the point of the gospel is to see people saved. Isn't that right? It's not just to make us feel better or to make us experts in technique. It's going all the world and preach the gospel and lo, I am with you always, baptizing them. In other words, the gospel has intrinsic in it the expectation that fish will get caught. Now, if you're a fisherman and you go fishing and you don't catch fish, what do you do? You blame the fish. Don't you? No, you don't. You think, I must be doing something wrong. I must be doing something wrong. Maybe I'm fishing in the wrong place. Hmm? Maybe I'm using the wrong bait. Maybe I'm not being patient enough, maybe I'm using the wrong rod maybe I'm using, uh, I shouldn't be using a spinner maybe I should be using a, uh, all that sort of thing the fisherman says, I'm not catching fish so what can I do to make, make this better I'm challenged brothers and sisters, we should be thinking how can we make our gospel effort better how can we reach how can we see it more effectively and I know we don't do it 
by physical means. You know what I mean by that. What we need to say is, are we not praying enough? Are we not, you know, are we not faithful? You know, that, that's the idea. But here's I'm getting. I'm getting to this. Every Christian is a soldier. Now, if the farmer has got to do with coverage, and the fisherman's got to do with catching, the soldier's got to do with conflict. A soldier is trained for battle. A soldier is engaged in a conflict. The Christian life is a life of conflict. We're probably more of the aware of the reality of war in Europe now than we've ever been in my generation, aren't we? Maybe some of you were young, old enough to remember the Second World War, but we're now very, 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 very aware of the war in Ukraine. And one of the things that impresses me is how ordinary citizens have suddenly become heroes in the war. Have, have you seen that? You know, you've seen somebody being interviewed in the front line. What did you used to do? I used to sell computers. But you know what I do now? I defend my country. I, 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 used, to, I, I used to serve in a shop. But now I supply the, the weapons for the front line. And suddenly, ordinary people have become heroes in the warfare. Brothers and sisters, the ordinary Christians in this world are heaven's heroes. Christians that live godly lives, that live for Christ faithfully and holily in a hostile world, they are heaven's heroes. But if we're going to think about the Christian soldier, folks, we need to think about it in context of a big battle. You know, every war is made up of little battles, isn't it? Victories here and victories there. We must see our engagement as a Christian soldier in the context of this universal battle of history. Where did this battle begin? Where did this spiritual battle begin? You know where it began, didn't you? Genesis chapter 3. Isn't that right? Well, listen to this. God says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, speaking to Satan, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy heel, thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And right away back in the Garden of Eden, this battle that we are now engaged in started. And you and I are now in the midst of a, a battle that will begin in Genesis and it won't be completed until the revelation. Where will this battle end? Here's where it'll end. For us personally, it'll end like this. 1 Corinthians 15. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For us, our final victory is the resurrection of our body when the Lord Jesus comes back. But universally, globally, you have to go to Revelation 20. And I'll see what it says. When the thousand years has ended, the millennium, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they march abroad upon the plain of the earth and surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city Jerusalem, and fire comes down from heaven and consumes them. And the devil who had deceived them from Genesis chapter 3 
was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And right at the end of the Bible, final victory is given to the Lord Jesus Christ. But you and I are now between those two. We're between the beginning of this great spiritual battle between God and the enemy and the final victory in Revelation 20. You and I are right stuck in the midst of the heat of the battle. We're on the front line of that now. But again, I say to you this, listen to this. For as much then as the partakers of, of, of flesh and blood, Jesus also likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. And so you and I, as Christian soldiers, I go back to my original point, we're on the victory side. We're on the victory side. So as we go on to study the practicalities of being a Christian soldier, these are some of the things we're going to learn. Sorry, I should have gone back. A Christian soldier is an enlisted soldier, right? A Christian soldier is an, an emancipated soldier. Christian soldier is an equipped soldier. Christian soldier could be an entangled soldier. And a Christian soldier should be an effective soldier. And so as we think about a Christian soldier, these are the kind of headings we're going to use to describe our life. We are enlisted in the army of the Lord. We're emancipated. We're we're freedom fighters, folks. We're freedom fighters. We're certainly equipped soldiers. Where would you go if you were thinking about equipment for the soldier? Wouldn't you? Ephesians 6, the armour of God. We can become an entangled soldier. In other words, we can lose our effectiveness as a soldier. But in the end, praise God, we'll be an effective soldier. So the Christian as a soldier. And we're going to take up the mantle. Onward Christian soldiers. Marching unto war. With the cross of Jesus going on before. Let's just pray. Lord, thank you for choosing us, giving us the dignity of being children of God. Thank you, Lord, for saving us, redeeming us, making us thine, putting us in the army of God. And we pray that as we go, we might be able to escape the confusion in the mundaneness of the world and see who we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. So help us, Lord, just to practically live out what we should do in this world that is so much against thee and help us as we go. And we give thanks for the refreshments in the Lord's name. Amen. Lengthy introduction, I know, folks, but we'll try and move on a little quicker next time.